Let's open our Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 6. And of course, Matthew 6 is the Sermon on the Mount. And this is where Jesus basically tells his disciples, here's what people in the kingdom look like. Here's how they live their lives. And of course, in the Sermon on the Mount are a number of really cool statements that Jesus makes. Remember, he made a statement, if you hate your brother uh, in your heart, that you've committed murder against him. Remember he said that? He also said, if you look at a woman to lust after her, that you've committed adultery in your heart. He said, don't let the right hand know what the left hand is doing. And of course, one of the ones we hear often is where Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, that particular one, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. In other words, you can tell where your heart is by where your treasure is, right? Where you spend your money. Look at your checkbook, things like that. And so certainly that's a true reality. Well, I'm here this morning to add, not really add one, but to kind of give you another thought to think about when it comes to where your heart is. And it's this, listen, you can tell where your heart is by what you worry about, what you worry about. And what I'm here today to talk to you about is something we all struggle with called worry. We all have reasons why we worry. In fact, there's a lot of reasons today. We might think of ISIS. We might think of the fact that we have a presidential election coming up. That might bring a lot of worry. Earthquakes, you name it. You know, we, we have an animosity growing against Christians today. I mean, we have a lot of reasons to worry. And yet Jesus says right here, don't worry. In fact, I titled the message this morning, Where is Your Heart with Worry? Matthew 6, starting in verse 25, let's read together what Jesus says. He says, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is life not more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you by worrying could add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, and they neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that as we've read these words, your word, that God, it would permeate our hearts, that we would be able to gauge by your word where our hearts are this morning, and Lord, that we'd be people whose eyes and hearts are heavenly, and that we're looking at those things that are above and not those things that are on the earth. Lord, show us through your word how we can be people who follow your command to not worry. For we ask it in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Well, I'm sure you heard the story before, but I'm going to share it anyway about a man that was walking down the street one day when he ran into his friend. And his friend told him, I have a mountain of credit card debt. I just lost my job. My car is being repossessed and our house is in foreclosure, but I'm not worried about any of it. To which his friend said, really, how can you not worry about that? And he said, because I've hired a professional worrier. He does all my worrying for me, so I don't have to think about it. And the friend said, well, that's a great idea. How much does this professional worrier charge you? He said, he charges me $50,000 a year. $50,000? How are you ever going to pay that guy $50,000? To which he said, that's not my worry. It's his worry, right? 
I think worry is one of those things that every single one of us deal with on a regular basis. In fact, this morning, before you got to church, or maybe even while you were sitting here, how many of you could say that you already worried today? Raise your hand. I want to see you. Okay. All right. You guys are pretty honest. I appreciate that. We worry about a lot of stuff. In fact, this week on Thursday, I signed a lease for our church. We actually are leasing a building, a seven-year lease. And I was really excited, you know, signing the lease. But as soon as I left the leasing office, I started worrying, like, like, what if it doesn't work out? What if people don't come to that new place? I mean, worry has its ability to set in so quickly. That's why the Apostle Paul writes in Philippians 4, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, right? In other words, he knows, he wrote that because he knows the anxiety and the anguish and the worry that we often experience. And of course, how quickly we can worry. We live in a world of anxieties. We have sleepless nights, ulcers, and heart disease, and all the rest. In fact, 25% of Americans today cannot get to sleep without some kind of chemical help. In fact, one guy actually used to set his alarm for midnight to wake up to take his sleeping pill. I mean, that's how, that's how bad it's gotten. And we can't sleep because our minds are filled with worry. We lay there at night with things swirling all around our minds and our hearts, and then we let our imagination run wild, which is where worry gets its strength, and we can think of a thousand reasons why we should worry. In fact, a man one time had a wife who was worried all the time that somebody was going to break in to their house. And so every time there's a little noise, he had to go downstairs and check it out. Well, one night he went downstairs and it actually was somebody breaking in the house. And he thought to, the, thought to himself and he said to the burglar, Mr. Burglar, would you do me a favor and come upstairs and meet my wife? She's been waiting 10 years to meet you. <laughs> somebody said, worry is interest paid on trouble before it's due. Worry is faith in the negative Trust in the unpleasant, assurance of disaster, and belief in defeat. Worry is wasting today's time to clutter up tomorrow's opportunities with yesterday's trouble. We all worry. Well, listen, here in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus touches on something common to all of us, and it's this issue of worry, and he gives us some solid reasons why you and I don't need to worry. In fact, he says it three times point blank, don't worry. Look what he says here, verse 20. Five, he says there, therefore I say to you, do not worry. And then he says the same thing down in verse 31. He says, therefore do not worry. And then again in verse 34, therefore do not worry about tomorrow. And that word for worry means to have excessive anxiety. The Greek word for worry means to engage in careworn, anxious fear which robs your life of joy. Let me read it again. Careworn, anxious fear that robs your life from joy. And then the English word comes from the old German word that means to strangle or to choke. So that's exactly what worry does. It has this mental and emotional strangulation that consumes you and distracts you. You can't get your mind off it, so it distracts and consumes all that you do. And here in this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus identifies the capacity we all have to worry And in fact, he even gives us three areas that we often find ourselves worrying about. In fact, if you look with me here again at verse 25, he says there, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink. So you could say he's saying there, no, don't worry about your life. And then he says going on in verse 25, and what you will put on. And he goes on later and says, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? So we can worry about life. We can worry about our clothing. And then if you went all the way down to the last verse, verse 34, it talks about worrying about tomorrow. So rather than saying our life uh, and our clothes and our, and our tomorrow, I, I put it into four things. Our food, our fashions, and our future. 
And I think these are three things we often worry about. Number one, he says there, don't worry about food. He says specifically life, but he defines life in verse 25 as what you eat and what you drink. So this speaks about our sustenance. Ultimately, it speaks of the fact that we need to survive, right? So we worry about our life, like what we're going to eat so that we can survive and not starve to death. Certainly that would be an issue. In fact, the word life is translated your breath or your physical life. So we can worry about our physical life. Most notably, are we going to survive? Do we have enough food? Now, I know that in this room, there's not a person here that's going to go hungry tonight for the most part, right? I mean, we live in a culture and society where we have lots of food. In fact, our worry about food is not, do I not have enough to eat? It's, have I eaten too much, right? I mean, we're going to go to a restaurant, probably some of us after church, and it's like, you know, I'm going to go to BJ's, and should I get the, you know, the extra thick crust pizza and maybe have something else on the side and maybe one of those pizookies on top of it? You know, I mean, our worry is, did I eat too much? Or, you know, I got to make dinner for my family tonight. We had Mexican last night, and tonight, you know, we got to have Chinese because I can't do Mexican again, but we had Chinese two nights ago, so maybe it's a, you know what I'm saying? I mean, that's our worry. It's not, we don't have enough, so we have way too much, and we can't even decide what to eat. Now, back in this day, they didn't have the ability to store food like we do today and refrigeration and, and all those things. So certainly, and, and water wasn't clean, so they had issues about lacking food. And sometimes it was only the day's worth of food that you had to eat. And then after that, you had to worry, if you would, about the next day. So certainly these are re- reality to us, but not in the same way that they faced it back then. Of course, if you add life and you say, well, that's food and a lot of other things, yeah, well, we can worry about our jobs, we can worry about or lack thereof, we can worry about our finances, a lot of things about life you can worry. So Jesus said, don't worry about your food. And then he says, secondly, don't worry about your fashions, what you put on, he says there, verse 25. Speaking of your clothing, literally in a broad sense, your shelter or covering, but having clothing, of course, is important when it comes to the elements, because if you're naked, you're going to have all the elements, so you have to have clothing to keep you warm and to keep you safe. And again, in our culture today, it's not an issue of lack of clothing. I mean, many of us only probably wear about 5-10% of what we own in clothing, right? And all the rest sits on the shelves. So it's not an issue of having anything to wear. It's more of our issues and our worries are more, you know, and what I, is what I'm wearing acceptable, right? I mean, does it make me look fat if I wear it? Um, is it the appropriate thing? I'm sure some of you ladies this morning are going through your closets going, what can I wear to church? Because I don't want to wear something that's going to make me stand out too much so that people you know, don't think that I'm appropriate to the situation or that I'm outdated. You know, so I want to wear something nice. I mean, that's obviously more of the worries that we have today. And of course, uh, the solution, by the way, is just wear black. I usually always wear black because it makes you look thin, number one, and it's always in style. But that's just a little side note for fashion tips. Uh, the truth is, Fashions may not be our worry, but we can certainly worry about what those fashions are covering. And that is our bodies, right? Our physical bodies. We live in a time today where there's an excessive amount of worry about our physical bodies, about how we look, our appearance. And people want to change their appearance. Did you realize in the last 20 years, uh, the number of cosmetic procedures has increased by over 200%. 9.5 million people had a cosmetic procedure in 2010, and that number has doubled since then. And every year, 8 million Americans have reported having an dis- eating disorder. And so what we're doing is we're cutting and we're starving and we're even killing ourselves all to improve this body. So people spend hours you know, investing, pampering, exercising, exfoliating, lasering their body. Hours at the gym, hours buying clothes to dress it, hours 
buying and applying cosmetics, hours getting your nails done, your toenails done, your eyebrows waxed, other places waxed, your hair cut, colored style. And that's just the men. I haven't even started talking about the women yet. I mean, we do. I was at the mall yesterday, walking down the mall. They have all those, they used to be like open between. Now there's like all these kiosks and there was guys sitting in the cosmetic thing getting treatments done, which is kind of new. But it's like the middle-aged woman, you know, she had a heart attack and, and she was taken to the hospital. And while on the operating table, she died and she stood before God and, and she said, God, is this it? Is my time up? And God said, actually, no, you have another 30 years, two months and eight days to live. But change your ways, he said to her. So upon recovery, she decided to do that. So she stayed in the hospital an extra few days, had a facelift, liposuction and tummy tuck. And she even had someone come in and change her hair color. And since she thought, I have so much more time to live, I might as well make the most of it. But after her operation was done and she walked out in front of the hospital, an ambulance struck her and she died. She stood before God once again and said, God, I thought you said I had another 30 years. God said, you do. I just didn't recognize you. That's all. (laughs) In addition to our cosmetic issues, we have health issues. I mean, health issues and worry, do you realize they go hand in hand? They say, statistics speaking, that half of American people in hospital beds today are there because of worry. 43% of all adults suffer health issues due to worry and stress, and 75% or more of all visits to a primary care physician are worry-related. Worry is the leading cause of death or linked to the leading cause of death with heart disease, cancer, lung ailments, accidents, cirrhosis, and suicide. Our bodies weren't created to worry. Of all God's creation, the animals and plants aren't worrying. Only humans worry. It's like the woman who was for 40 years worried she was going to get cancer. Every pain was cancer. Every little stomach issue was cancer. It's cancer. She died at the age of 73 from pneumonia, and she worried over 40 years that she had had cancer. She never did. I mean, that's the reality. So we worry about our fashions, our bodies. And finally, he says here, we also worry about our future. Verse 31 says, therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. And this is true. I think if there's one thing that we all agree on is, well, we don't know what tomorrow holds, right? Now, we know who holds tomorrow. We know what the future is as a believer. But even so, we don't know what this world's going to be. We don't know who's going to win the presidential election. We don't know what's going to happen with our kids. I mean, is my kids going to turn out okay? Are they going to get married? Are they going to get divorced? Are they going to have kids? Am I going to get a divorce? Is my marriage going to be good in 10 years? I mean, what is going to happen in the future? And that's something that if we start thinking about, we can become very anxious over. Somebody said, today is the tomorrow you worried about yesterday. And listen, all these things that we worry about oftentimes have to do with the earthly, the here and now, what's going on right now. And just as I said at the very beginning, how can we tell where our heart is? Well, we can tell where our heart is, or our treasure is, by where our heart is, or our heart is where our treasure is. In the same way, we can tell where our heart is by what we worry about. And if what we're worried about has to do with the here and now and the earthly and all that's going on here, then we, what we know from that is that our heart is very earthly. It's not spiritual. It's not heavenly minded. It's not kingdom minded. It's earthly. And we can tell where our heart is by what we worry about. And that reveals where our heart is. So Jesus exposes us, but he always gives us the solution. That's what I love about the Lord is he doesn't just expose things. He says, but let me give you the answer. And so he gives us really a commandment. Three times he says, do not worry. And he gives us incredible reasons why we don't need to worry. And the first one is this. Number one, you don't need to worry because it's unnecessary. Why is it unnecessary? That's easy to say. Well, he gives us the reason. He says, because God is your father. In other words, have you forgotten who your father is? Have you forgotten who your dad is? Look what he says here, verse 25. 
He says, therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father. Notice he's telling the disciples, it's your heavenly Father. And then he says the same thing, if you look down at verse 32, he says the same thing, for all these things the Gentiles seek after, for your heavenly Father knows. What's he telling the disciples and us? He's saying, your heavenly Father knows. He's in control. You don't have to worry. It's unnecessary because you are, a, as a follower of Christ, you are a child of God. You are a son or daughter of the kingdom. He has committed himself to take care of you. And because God loves you, he always takes care of his kids. He is a good, good father, as we often sing in that song, right? He is a good father. He takes care of us. And then in verse 25, he even goes on to say and says, Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? In other words, our life with God is about more than these base things like food and clothing. And yet we put all of our attention and energy into these things that really don't matter. They have no value. And God says, why are you, as a, king, a child of the kingdom of God, worried about all these base things like what you're going to wear and what you're going to eat? I mean, I can't believe you're even worried about that stuff. you got stuff that's much greater to consume your thoughts and mind than such base, simple things like what you're going to eat and what you're going to wear. Why would you do that? In essence, what he's saying is life is a lot more than these simple things. The argument is this. If God gave you life and he takes care of his own and even more so saved your soul, called you to be a child of his, he's going to bring you to heaven someday, then what makes us think for one moment that he isn't going to take care of us right now? It's what, it's what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8 when he said, if God did not spare his own son but delivered up for us all, in other words, he gave his best, he says, will he not also then freely give us all things? He's going to give you everything you need. That's what our God promises. And then he gives us an example. He says, in fact, look at the birds, verse 30, 26. Look at the birds. You can watch a bird. They have, you know, they, they get up in the morning. They're not sweating over what they're going to eat that day. They just go out and they gather their food. And God provides their food for them. And they bring it back to their nest and they eat. And the next day they get up and they do the same thing. And, and in other words, the bird just has a daily sustenance provided by God every day. And God is faithful. In a different way, we actually plant crops, harvest those crops, store those crops. We have even more of an abundance of supply and God says, why are you worried for a moment when God takes care of the birds? You can just look at them and see how faithful God has been. And in the same way, we're told to pray, Lord, give us this day our daily bread because daily God provides for us. And it's, you know, birds don't get up and lay around and wait for somebody to bring them their food. They actually have to go get it. In the same way, God says, I'm going to provide for you, but you got to go work. You know, you don't work, you don't eat, so you got to go out, you got to work. You trust, trust me, I'm going to supply for you. And then he goes on in verse 26 and says, And are they not of more, are you not of more value than they? So talking about the birds, he says, You're more valuable than the birds. And, and certainly we are. We're child of the kingdom. We're the capstone of God's creation. I, I, I've been teaching through Genesis at our church, and we got to, of course, the creation of man. And it's just incredible because, you know, day one he did this, day two he did that, day three he did this, and he gets to day six, and he gets to man, he, he stops, he has a conference, you know, let us make man in our image after our likeness. I mean, God, and then it says in, in the next chapter, too, that God actually gets down and he fashions the dirt, and he makes us. I mean, to the lengths God went to to make us, because we are the capstone of his creation. We are the ones that are, have dominion over all God created. We are to subdue it. We are to tend and keep it. In other words, God has created us as the, as the pinnacle of all his creative power. And he says, you're more valuable 
than birds. Now, I know in our evolutionary culture today, people have a hard time with, you know, animals and humans. You know, we're all just evolved beings, so humans are on the same level as animals, and we should not treat animals differently because they're the same as humans, and we're all the same. We all evolved out of the same slime pit, you know, so we're all the same. I mean, that's the mentality, right? But Jesus says right here, you're more valuable than animals. You're more valuable than any other created thing. And in fact, that doesn't mean we should mistreat or we should abuse. I mean, I think as Christians, we should be the best stewards of the earth and the best stewards of animals than anybody. In fact, the Bible says a righteous man regards the life of his animal. So in other words, that our life as a human should be one to care for, to tend and keep and to be a good steward of everything. I think we should be a good example in our use of the earth. That's why I drive a Prius. Uh, That's not why, really, but I drive a Prius. I don't know if I should be proud of that. But anyway, here's... Here's the reality. We are God's pinnacle, and we are more invaluable and more important than animals. I'm sure you've seen the sticker PETA, P-E-T-A, Protection and Ethical Treatment of Animals. I totally agree. That's, we should do that. But I like this other sticker. It said PETA, People Eat Tasty Animals. I thought, yeah, that's the one I like right there. And then he says, look at the wildflowers or the field lilies, verse 28. He says, in fact, look at them. You know, he says... Why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, neither toil nor spin. I say to you, even Solomon in all his glory is not as arrayed like one of these. But, he goes on, verse 29, and yet I say, or verse 30, now if God so clothes the grass of the field which is today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? What's he saying here? He's saying, well, just walk out into the meadow. And look at all the flowers that God's created, how beautiful they are and how arrayed they are. I mean, there's nothing like God's creation in all the earth. And whatever man can make, they can never top God in what he's made. And here's the reality of it. What God made is going to be here today and gone tomorrow. It's going to burst up today. It's beautiful. And tomorrow it's going to wither to nothing. You think, why would God take so much time to make something so beautiful, even more glorious than Solomon at his highest peak of his splendor is not even close to the beauty of a simple wildflower in a meadow? Why would God do that here today and gone tomorrow? And he says, because you're of so much more value. You're going to be living forever for all eternity. Why would God not then clothe you and take care of you just like he does everything else that he's created? And the point is extremely simple. It's even ridiculous to worry. God takes care of his creation. He takes care of his kids. He's the one that gives us life and existence and will with that. Not he also give us everything else to sustain our life. He says it's unnecessary for you to worry because God is your father. Secondly, he says it's unproductive. It doesn't get you anywhere, right? As the saying goes, why worry? It doesn't make any difference anyway. In fact, it makes a negative difference. He says there in verse 27, which of you by worrying could add one cubit to his stature? Can you get taller by worrying? I'm here to tell you it doesn't work. I tried, okay? It doesn't work. I wanted to be taller. It didn't happen. You can't do nothing. You waste all this time, all this energy to change things that you can never change by worrying. It's like a mouse inside of a cage and one of those little wheels. It's statistically been proven that they'll run 9,000 miles on that little wheel. And where have they gotten? Absolutely nowhere. They're started at the same, they end at the same point they start in the same way. At least a mouse gets some exercise. When we worry, it affects our circulation, the heart, the glands, the entire nervous system. And no man has ever been known to die of overwork, in this, but many have been known to die of worry. It affects our bodies. Story is told of a man who came face to face with the danger of worry. As he was leaving his town, he saw death entering his town. 
And he stopped death. He said, what are you doing here, death? And death said, I have an appointment tonight with 100 people. They're going to die in your city. And the man thought, well, what can I do to stop it? And he said, nothing. Death is inevitable. He's going to come. So the man ran back into the city, started telling everybody he could that death was coming and to be ready. And by the end of the evening, as death was leaving, the man stopped him again. And he said, death, you told me you were only going to take 100 people. Why did 1,000 people die? To which death said, I only took a hundred, but worry took the rest. You see, worry will take your life. 40% of our worries about things that will never happen. 30% about things in the past that you could never change. 12% about criticisms by others that are mostly untrue. 10% about health, which only gets worse with stress. And then 8% of our worry about real problems that will be faced. So that means 92% of our worry are worrying about things that are useless. And of the 8%, that you are worried about, that are legitimate, are not helping one bit at all. It's unnecessary, it's unproductive, and then lastly, it is ungodly to worry. Because the world worries, right? Look what Jesus says in verse 30. He said, If God so clothed the grass of the field, which is today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? But after all these things the Gentiles seek, For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. What Jesus is saying here is, in other words, when you are a worrier, you're acting just like an unbeliever. You see, when he wrote the Sermon on the Mount, the idea of the Sermon on the Mount was to say, this is how my people live. This is how people in the kingdom of God, uh, this is how they're supposed to live. And this is what sets them apart, is is that they're they're not murdering one another. They're not lusting after one another. They're they're hungering and thirsting for the the things of God. They're doing all these things, but but it's also true to say that they are salt and light, that we're living our life in such a way that we are an example for the rest of the world to look at and go, what is it about you that makes you so different? And one area that we act a lot like the rest of the world is when we're worried and when, we, when a person looks at our life who is somebody who's really following Christ and not worried but trusting, they look at you and they go, how can you not worry right now? How can you not have anxiety? Look at all that you're going through. We say, well, because my eyes are in the heavens and my eyes are on God and God's promised to take care of me so I'm not going to worry. And they look at that and they go, man, you are really a different person than the rest of us. That's what the Sermon on the Mount's all about. But instead, they see us worried and full of anxiety. And we say, oh, yeah, praise God. We love Jesus. He's my Lord and my Savior. And the next day, we're like overcome with anxiety and frustration. They look at you and they go, well, what is it that makes you any different than me? And the very purpose of the Sermon on the Mount is that you're to be salt and light. You're to be different than the world around you. You're to be infiltrating it like salt does its food. And we're to be making a difference. And it all boils down to how we respond to the things that are going around us. And you see, worry becomes one of those things that really can either set us apart or make us just like everyone else. By worrying, what we're saying is, God, I know that you can keep the sun in orbit. You can sustain all life on earth. I know you can answer all the prayers over all the earth by all the people. I know you've always been in control in in the past. However, I do not believe you can take care of my problem. That's what we're saying by worrying. I don't believe that you can handle it. You can save me from my sin. You can take me to heaven. You can keep me forever, but you can't. Take care of this issue. John MacArthur put it this way, quote, Worry says, God, I'm not sure I can trust you. I don't think I, you, I can cope with it. My God won't be adequate. Anytime you worry, you're acting like someone who doesn't believe in God. Jesus in Matthew 6 says, when you worry about these things, you're acting like a pagan. You're basically saying, God 
is not going to keep his promises. God is not going to take care of my needs. If it is to be so, it is up to me. And some people are so devoted to the sin of worry that when they have nothing in the present to worry about, so they look for something in the future. And God, the Lord forbids, what are you worrying about tomorrow? Because today has enough. The fact of the matter is, is that worry is a sin and it's a failure to trust God. And listen, if you're a follower of Jesus and you are a uh, believer in Jesus Christ, and then you're not a pagan, you're a child of the living God, you're a son or a daughter of the Most High, and you have a father who loves you and he's going to take care of you, and he promises to do that. And so we have no reason to worry. Now there is one condition, however, that will help us to not worry. And one condition we can know that all these things are true. And that's what he says here in closing, verse 33. He says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then notice, and all these things shall be added unto you. So in other words, what he's saying is you don't need to worry about your life being sustained by food and nourishment. You don't need to worry about shelter and protection and clothings and fashion. You don't need to worry about tomorrow or the future. God's got all that covered. But if you want to worry about something, here's what it is. Seek God first. If you worry about that, everything else you need will be given. Seek God's kingdom, seek God's purposes, seek God's person, put them ahead of all those other things, and you will find that all those other things are there. God will take care of you. He says to seek him first. Matthew 6, it's the same word where Jesus says earlier in this, in this uh, Sermon on the Mount, to hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's in Jeremiah 29, 13, where God says, and you will seek me and you will find me when you search for me with your whole heart. David said, delight yourself in the Lord and commit your ways to him and he will give you the desires of your heart, right? So it's all about putting God first. He is the priority. He is the top priority. And if I put him first, then I know that all those things will be added unto me, that I'll have everything I need. So I give him the first of my time. David said, early will I seek you. I give him the first of my talents. I want to serve the Lord with what he's given me. I give him the first of my treasure, my money, and I honor him as the book of Proverbs says, honor him with the first fruits of your possessions and your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. And God provides everything and how often we put everything before him and we give God the leftover and he says, no, if you put me first, you'll have plenty for everything else. You see, we want God to provide. We want God to bless. We want God to protect. We want our business to prosper. We want all of our bills paid. And then, but yet we don't put God first and we wonder why those things don't happen. I, I met a few people a while back that were doing a business and, and I was sharing with them and they were hit and miss at church and I kind of called them, hey, what's going on? Oh yeah, we just got this business. We're trying to get it going. But you know what, Pastor? Once we get the business going, once we get some money flowing in, man, we're going to have all this free time. We're going to be able to give a lot of time to the church. We're going to be able to give all kinds of money to the church. You know, we just need this season now to just focus on our business and if we do that first, then everything will, else will come. Well, let me tell you, their business crashed and burned and they have nothing to show for it. And I thought to myself, well, maybe it had something to do with you not putting God first. Maybe you should honor God first and then maybe he'll bless the business if that's what he wants to do. Or people are trying to pay their bills off to get ahead and they're pinching pennies and they're working overtime and they're trying to do everything they can but they have nothing or very little to give to God or to support God and then they wonder why their bats, vats are not overflowing and why they're, they don't have enough because they've put God second, third, fourth, fifth and they put their own interests first. Or I've met people on the street that have come up to me and they have nothing to eat. They have nowhere to live. And they say, can you give me some food? And they want to come to the church and ask the church to give them money and to help them out. And I want to help everybody. I wish I could help everybody and, and give them everything they need. But maybe, just maybe, maybe they're in the situation they're in because they've not put God first. And that's all it takes. And I haven't found yet a person who is truly putting God first that is in any kind of need. 
Because God always takes care of his kids. And when you put him first, if he's not providing, if something's not going wrong, then you have to come back and say, maybe it's because I'm not honoring God first. You know, there's an incredible little book in the Old Testament, the book of Haggai. It's, it's about a time in the life of the children of Israel where they had take, been taken to Babylon because of their disobedience. They'd been there 70 years, and God finally said, okay, it's time to go back into your land. So they end up going back into the land, and they'd be given a decree by the secular Persian king to rebuild their temple. And so they get to work. They even had all their materials supplied to be able to build the temple. And so they start building it, and then they face a little bit of opposition, so they stop building it. And then they take all the surplus that was supposed to go to the temple, and they start building their own houses with all that surplus, and they start making paneled houses and beautiful houses. And, and yet God comes to them one day by the prophet Haggai and says, you know what? You guys are out there trying to work. You're trying to gather things, but it's like you gather money and you put it in your pocket, but your pocket has holes in it, and all that money that you got gets blown away, and everything you try and gather for yourself turns to nothing. Do you want to know why? God says, because my temple lies in ruins while each one of you runs to your own house. In other words, they weren't honoring God first. They were putting all their own stuff first, and then they're wondering why they were living in poverty. It's because we got to put God first. God says, man, you put me first, and everything will fall into place. He's got to be that first priority in our life. And I think we find ourselves in similar situations time and time again, God says, man, I want to meet all your needs. Man, I want to provide. I want your business to prosper. I want your life to be blessed in every way. But listen, this is the one criteria. One thing you need to worry about is put me first. You put me first, and I will provide everything that I want you to have. And listen, if you're a follower of Christ, if you're a Christian, you're not a pagan. You are a son and daughter of the living God. You are a child of God, and your Father loves you, and he's going to take care of you, and he promises that. But let me say this as well. If you are not a follower of Jesus Christ and you've not yet surrendered your life to him, then you have a lot of things to worry about. I'll tell you as a believer in Christ, you have nothing to worry about. As a non-believer, you have a lot to worry about. Now, the Bible does say that God causes it to rain on the just and the unjust. He provides food for the just and the end. God will take care of even the unbeliever. But there's a big problem for the unbeliever. And the reason they need to worry is because there's a thing called hell, a place called hell. There's a thing called the afterlife that we'll all enter into. And unless our lives are surrendered to God, unless we believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross for our sins, the Bible says that we, in essence, then have rejected the gospel. We've rejected Christ, the only means of our salvation, which means that we're going to end up ultimately separated from God for all eternity in a place called hell. And if you're an unbeliever and you've not accepted Christ, then that is a lot for you to worry about. But I got a better idea. You don't need to worry anymore because Jesus came and he came for the purpose to die on the cross for your sins and mine. See, the Bible says we've all sinned against God. We're all, we've all offended him. God is holy and righteous and perfect and we are sinful, unrighteous and wicked and we were born with this sinful nature so automatically we can't enter into the presence of God. He is too holy and too righteous. We would be smite or killed in an instant but God had to somehow reconcile us to him and so he sent his perfect son Jesus, who lived a sinless life and walked this earth without ever sinning and yet went to the cross and died as if he were the worst sinner who ever lived. And God, the Bible says, poured on him the iniquity of us all. God put our sin on Jesus. And when Jesus died, he died for the sins of the world so that we can be entered and reconciled to God into a relationship with God again where our sin is removed and that we can actually have a living, live relationship with God where he provides all of his needs because we become children of God in the moment we believe. Or we can reject that and we have to worry about a place called hell. And it's a choice we all have to make. 
I wonder, have you made the choice to enter into a relationship with God, to be forgiven of all your sins, to have the hope that when you die, you go to heaven, not because of anything you've done, but because of what Jesus did when he died on the cross for you. But he asks us to believe that. He asks us to surrender. And the moment we do, God becomes our Father. The Bible says Jesus speaking, or actually the Gospel writer John said this, as many as received Him, He gave them the right to become the children of God. We're not all children of God because we're born in the earth. Only those who receive Jesus are children of God. Everyone else, even Jesus said it, is the child of the devil. That's what He told the Pharisees. You're of your father, the devil. So either God's your father or the devil's your father, and it's the choice that we make to either believe or reject the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And I wonder... Do you have that relationship with God? Is God your father? Because if he is, you have nothing to worry about. But if he isn't, you have a lot to worry about. And I want to make sure today that he is and that you have no reason to worry.